Well, if you will, take your Bibles and turn with me as the plates come by to the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Today we wrap up our six-week vision and values series. So we talked about the vision for our church about six weeks ago, and we've been walking through our church-wide values. These are the the values that we share across all eight campuses. Number one, the gospel first and always. That drives everything that we do. Number two, uniquely called, how we use our gifting and the unique gifts and talents that God has given us to advance that one gospel to point people and weave them into the one body of Jesus Christ. Number three, we talked about intentional innovation, that we don't innovate for innovation's sake, But instead, we do whatever it takes in order to reach out to people with the gospel, to lay aside our preferences, uh, and to be creative and passionate about the way that we engage people with the hope of Christ. Number four, last week, we talked about crossing cultures, about how God has given us the opportunity to be bridge builders and reconcilers. And then this week, number five, and our last and final church-wide value is multiplying matters, that multiplication is the math of the kingdom. And we'll talk about why that's a reality in just a few moments. But every time I come to a text like this one about Jesus praying, my memory is sparked of my first visit to Israel back in 2012. I had the opportunity to go with a pastor friend of mine. He's a good friend of mine, a colleague, one of those guys I I call and I interact with on a regular basis. And he has this incredible ministry as part of his ministry of taking groups to Israel. And so you, it's a unique format. Instead of, you know, most trips, you get the itinerary, you're going to see this site, you're going to go visit this place. You don't get any of that. You fly to Tel Aviv, you get on a bus, and you go wherever that bus goes. It's called Follow the Rabbi is the format. And I loved it. And so we didn't just visit sites, but we hiked them, we swam in them, we jumped off of things, we climbed things. Uh, and so it was an incredible, immersive experience for me as a pastor to just get to experience the, the stage of redemptive history in that way on my first time to Israel. And so several days into the trip, it was about day five or six, we left. We'd been kind of in the south where it's a very uh, it's desert-like there. And, and we had gone up through Masada and up through that region. And we ended up up in Galilee. And because obviously the Sea of Galilee is a body of water, all of a sudden it was humid. And my blisters had blisters at this point uh, for the amount of hiking we had been doing. And so again, we weren't told anything other than you need to be up at 4.30 a.m. We've got a strenuous hike in the morning. So be sure you get yourself down to the breakfast buffet and carb load and all the lean protein that you can handle. And so I'm there, carb load, no problem. The only lean protein on the breakfast buffet was tuna. So I'm trying to pound some tuna at like 4.30 in the morning, right? So, and you kind of get on the bus and we drove around the north end of the Sea of Galilee and we began the hike up this pretty massive mountain. Now the joke became several days in, right? If there was a mountain, we were going to end up on top of it. This is looking at the northeast end of the Sea of Galilee. And so this mountain is not named in the Bible, but by golly, we were going to go up it. So we started up at about 5.45 in the morning. Again, it's humid. I ate all this tuna fish. I start to burp tuna on my way. There's nothing grosser than that. I'm sweating now. Like it's like 102 degrees by the time it was about 8 a.m. And so here's a picture of our team going up this goat path up the side of the mountain. Only later did they tell us you can actually take a tour bus to the top of this thing. But this was part of character building, I guess. We hiked through caves, spiders, scorpions, whole nine yards, right? We see this ledge. We had to climb that thing. And here's what I realized. I used to think I was afraid of heights. I'm not really bothered by heights. It doesn't bother me to be in a big building or an airplane or anything like that. 
ledges. That's what I don't like. Something that I could fall off of. So we're using the handhelds. We're going up this thing, you know, using wire guides. And I'm just like, don't look down. Don't look down. Don't look down. So we get to the top after this, you know, four or five hour hike. And here is the view. It is stunning. And so I asked my buddy, it's like, why are we here? Right? We're all panning, sweating, burping up tuna fish. Like, This site isn't even listed in the Bible. What is this all about? Well, as you're here, that little village down below is Magdala, home of Mary Magdalene. That's where she gets her name. Then just around the bend there in the Sea of of Galilee is the town of Capernaum, where Jesus operated his home base and where he set up his base for ministry. And so our tour guide said, now, again, we don't know the specific locations, but it says that Jesus got up in the morning went to solitary places up the mountain and he prayed. This could have been one of the places that he visited at some point. And he went on to explain that from this vantage point at the top of our bell, you kind of could look out and think about all of the people groups in the world at the time. He, and he led us in a prayer for them. You know, there to the north, you have Lebanon and you have Mount Hermon. You know, you have Damascus. You go on, of course, you've got the Jewish cities that are right there immediately at your feet. Then you go on across the Sea of Galilee back to the east and you see uh, the Decapolis, which is the 10 pagan cities. And then you continue on counterclockwise or clockwise around the Sea of Galilee until you see Tiberias, this huge Greek city, now a Roman city, of course. And he just began to describe how, how you can just pray for these people groups. And so finally I said, so Brian, got to tell me, man, our bell, I have learned by now, every name in Israel has a meaning. What's our bell mean? And he said, ambushed. And man, that's what I needed to hear on that day. Because sitting there in that moment praying, I realized that I often have my agenda and my plans. I was excited about seeing certain sites in Israel, right? And ones that I I knew were in the Bible. But what God did at this place was he ambushed my heart to recognize That what Jesus did when he needed to be with his father was he did whatever it took to get to those solitary places to pray. Because if we're not careful, our agenda, our plan, what we want drives us. But it's in moments like this that we hear clearly from the father what our priority needs to be. And so Jesus knew the importance of time with the father. We have to know and recognize and prioritize that as well. Will you stand with me in honor of God's word as we read from Mark chapter 1, verses 35 through 38. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place. And there he was praying. Simon and his companions searched for him. And when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. This is why I have come. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Pray with me this morning. Lord Jesus, it's overwhelming when we think about the needs in the world. It's overwhelming when we think about your great big plan, but would we follow the example that you set for us by starting in prayer and then hearing from you, allowing that to clearly set our priorities? Lord, would that be true for us as individuals, as families, as groups, and as a church? We need to hear from you. And it's in your name we pray these things. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. 
So as we've talked about throughout this series, we know that God's desire for us as a people or to, is to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. But of course, when we become fully devoted followers of Jesus, we want to follow the commands that Jesus gave us. Of course, the first and greatest command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. So love God, love people. And then of course, we know that Jesus left us with something that we call the Great Commission. We don't call it the Great Suggestion But it's the great commission that we are to go and make disciples of all nations. Now, we talked about that nations part last week, that word ethne, crossing cultures, that we are to go to them. This week, we focus on this idea of multiplication, that as disciples, we want to be disciples who multiply other disciples. We know that throughout the scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, multiplication is God's math. Way back in the Garden of Eden, God looked at Adam and Eve, and he in essence said, enjoy my grace, right? Enjoy everything that I've given to you so that you can extend my glory. Be fruitful and do what? Multiply. And so all throughout the story of Scripture, God's kingdom doesn't just grow by addition, but it grows exponentially. God starts with a man and his family. They multiply into a nation. From that nation comes a messiah. And that Messiah would take a band of disciples and those disciples would multiply into a movement that we call the church. And you and I are here today because there have been disciples before us who have been faithful to not just add to ministry, but to multiply ministry in the power of the spirit. And this is so important because if we try to do things in man's way, we'll never receive and see God-sized results. But if we do things God's way, then we see God move in a way far beyond what we could ever imagine or dream or hope for in our own strength. And so as disciples who multiply disciples, our first point this morning is this, our priority has to be prayer. Otherwise we get the cart before the horse. Otherwise we are tempted to tell God what we're going to do for him instead of doing things with him. Our priority has to be prayer. As I mentioned a few moments ago, I know when most of us look at the enormity of needs in the world, the physical needs. I mean, just the hurting and hungry and broken people, the, the emotional needs that people have, the, the strife and just problems that are all around us. Everywhere you look in culture, it's overwhelming. I don't know about you, but I'm incredibly encouraged to think about this. The Jesus, the one guy who could do something about all of us, do you know what he said, where he needed to begin and what he modeled for us? Was he started in time with the Father. That's something we can all do. That's a place where we can all begin. So let's not get the cart before the horse. Let's not think about all of our ministry strategies and models until we do what Jesus did. And that's get away from the crowds and spend time with the Father. If you read Mark chapter 1, what you'll see taking place is that the ministry of Jesus had been launched publicly. Crowds were drawn to him. He preached, of course, like no other. He had a power to heal like no other. We would like to say in our time and uh, our time and day, he was going viral at this point. So people were coming out of the woodwork to be able to see him. And so what did Jesus do? Did Jesus like go find a booking agent and start booking himself into big venues all across Galilee? Did Jesus get himself an Instagram and to be sure that he increased his followers so he could be a social media influencer? No. Jesus didn't do any of the things that we 
would say that he should have done to capitalize on his sudden popularity. Instead, what did Jesus do? He spent more time with the Father. He goes to a solitary place. It's interesting because in the Gospel of Mark, we often think of the desert, these solitary places, the quote wilderness, as a negative. But in the Bible, they're presented positively. Why? Because it's there that you can reflect. It's there that you're restored. It's there that you find fellowship with God. As I reflected on my first trip to Israel, as I looked back, some of the hardest hikes that we had were through the wilderness. But do you know what? Those were also some of the most memorable because when it's you, a a bottle of water, your hiking pack and and your shoes, that's all you've got. It's you and God and nothing else. There's nothing to distract you. There's no cell phones that reach there, right? There's nothing except for you and God. And so there's something to be said about the wilderness journey that some of us need to go on where we're in a solitary place where we can be still, Psalm 4610, and know what? That he is God and we are not. Because with our technology, we're tempted to try to live godlike lives, to be omnipresent, to be all knowledgeable, right? Because we have this little bit of technology in our hands at our disposal. We try to do too much. Jesus instead, right, went to the wilderness. And it's interesting, in three times in the Gospel of Mark specifically, it talks about Jesus praying. All three times are similar. Here, following the feeding of the 5,000 and in the Garden of Gethsemane. All three happen in the dark, in solitary places, and in the context of opposition to his ministry. Now, that opposition didn't always look the same, but in each situation, we could see where Jesus, in his humanity, would have been tempted to take the easy way instead of the way of rejection, suffering, and ultimately death. It was in these times of prayer that we see Jesus then emerge from them, crystal laser focused on his mission. I love what James Edwards says in the Pillar New Testament commentary. He says, the work of the Son of God is both an inward and an outward work. Jesus cannot extend himself outward in compassion without first attending to the source of his mission and purpose with the Father. And conversely, his oneness with the Father compels him outward in mission. The significance of Jesus's ministry is consists not simply in what he does for humanity, but equally in who he is in relation with the father. Isn't that beautiful? Think about that inward, outward movement, right? The more time we spend with God, the more we have God's heart for the lost and searching and hurting around us. The more time we're out there in ministry serving these people, the more we realize, hey, we've got to get with our father. We need to be restored. We need to be replenished. We need to clearly hear from him because we get out there and it gets confusing and we're human and we get weary and we get tired and we need to retreat back. Confession, I experience this on a regular basis as pastor. And sometimes I neglect my time with the Lord. It's a tempting thing to do. Why? Because there's so much that needs to be done. So this week I went back, even this morning reflecting on this, to a picture that hangs above my desk in my study. This picture was given to me my very first year on staff at Brentwood Baptist Church 20 years ago. It's taken by one of our members at the time. This is his grandfather's hand. It actually won some awards and he's just simply holding a cup. And what you see is water coming from above, right? Filling that cup. But then what's happening? That cup is overflowing. And this picture hangs above my desk as a reminder to me that I have a limited amount of grace and mercy. I have a limited amount of love and patience. I have limits. 
But the living water that I'm connected to, right, is abounding in grace and mercy. God, through his spirit, right, can help me to have patience and to love people the way that they need to be loved. And here's the great news about this. I'm human. So when the divine love of God, his mercy and his grace and his goodness, when they fill me, guess what happens? I can't hold it all in myself. So it splashes out of me and it falls onto those that I interact with, on my wife, on my kids, our staff, on you as a church, on my friends, on the people that I interact with. So for me, right, this is that picture that hangs there to remind me of what I need most. And yes, I'm preaching to myself as well. The reality is, is that our first priority has to be prayer, that movement to connect with the Father so that our priorities can be clarified. Because number two, our second point this morning is this, as disciples who multiply disciples, our temptation is popularity. Part of the problem with the church in North America is, is we're way hung up on what we would call the brag numbers. Anybody remember the brag boards they used to hang at the front of a church? The old little tiny churches, you'd have these wooden boards and it would have how many attended Bible study and how many attended church and how much money. We call those brag boards. Do you know to this day, get together with pastors, get together with other people in the community. How do they measure the success of our church? You know what they've asked me since day number one at Station Hill? How many you running? Because that's the metric that people in our culture assume, assume success by. What's fascinating about the ministry of Jesus is, is that the crowds were fickle. Jesus was never seeking to just draw a crowd. As a matter of fact, let's think about what happened on Holy Week. Jesus comes into Jerusalem in the, what we call the triumphal entry, right? Riding on a donkey and the crowds are shouting what? Hosanna, right? It's a parade. It's a party. Yeah, Jesus is here. By Friday, the crowds are shouting what? Crucify him. That's how fickle the crowds are. So if you're going to measure your success or your faithfulness in ministry by the popularity that you have, well, that is a fickle number indeed. And so Jesus, right, is still praying when Simon and his companions, the other disciples, come to find him. That's what that word means, right? That Jesus wasn't done, right? He was there praying and he's interrupted. Simon and his companions searched for him. That word in the Greek, that's not a great translation. The better word is hunted him down. And let me give you the illustration of this. Many of you are parents or have been parents in this room. When your kid wants something, they will find you. They want to hang out at a friend's house. They want to watch something. They want to eat something, right? They want money. I've got two in college, right? One in high school, one in middle school, one in preschool. I'm an ATM machine, I feel like, these days, right? It's just constant. You need money for what? That costs what? Right, it's just one of those things. Not only that, I feel like, my wife and I have talked about this before, that our kids have a radar. They'll all scatter in the house like they can't be found. Time to do chores. Time to do the dishes. Crickets. We retreat to our room to have one private conversation, Right? We just want a moment to ourselves. All of a sudden, it's like the kids are like, mom and dad are alone. We've got to find them, right? And knocks at the door. And it doesn't matter if you're in the bedroom, if you're in the bathroom. And let's just be honest, it doesn't matter if you're going to the bathroom. Your kids are knocking on the door. It's like they know somehow. That's the word picture here for Simon and the disciples. Like they are going to hunt Jesus down. Jesus, it doesn't matter that you're praying. You got time to do that later. Right now, the people are chanting your name. Jesus, your numbers are trending up. Like you're popular. And, you know, I think the disciples probably had good intentions. 
more people to hear, bigger crowds. Man, they, they love the way that you're ministering and healing people. So Jesus, there is more work to be done. But Jesus knew that there's a difference between just the good and the great. He knew there's a difference between what we do in our strength and what success looks like through the eyes of man versus what success looks like through the eyes of God. I love what Simon says. Everyone's looking for you. You ever heard that before, right? Everybody. It's an overstatement. Everybody wasn't looking for Jesus. A lot of people were, to be sure. But Jesus knew his priority. You see, it's day one, and the mission is already under threat. Not from the enemy, but from Jesus' own disciples who don't understand the priority. It's interesting, right? All love a powerful teacher, but few want to obey his commands. All want healed, but few want the kingdom. Everybody wants what Jesus can do for them, yet few truly want Jesus. And Jesus knows that. And he's much more concerned with the quality of the disciple than he is the quantity of the crowd. Which leads us to our third point this morning, which is this, is disciples who multiply disciples. Our primary mission is to preach, to get the good news out. No, your ministry isn't going to look exactly like Jesus's, right? Your ministry may not look like mine, standing up on on a platform and teaching and preaching the word. But we all can participate in the mission of getting the gospel out. And that's what Jesus is laser focused on in this moment. One of the things I love about the gospel of Mark is that it's clear and concise. It shows Jesus being decisive. So when the disciples come and find him, there's not this hesitation on Jesus's part. He's been in prayer with the Father. Jesus doesn't uh, you know, have to say like we would, let me pray about it for a minute. Ah, <laughs> uh, let's see, do I go down the mountain and minister to this crowd or, or do I do what the Father told me to do? No, Jesus knows because he's already been in prayer. And so many of us are wishy-washy. So many of us are double-minded. So many of us flip-flop on our priorities and our decision-making. Why? Because we haven't clearly heard from the Father. And so Jesus has And Jesus knows exactly what his mission is. He'd already preached to those crowds. They had already had the opportunity to accept or reject the word. He had already healed there. They had already seen the power of the kingdom. Everything I ever did and we could add and he loved me anyway. Right? That's what the gospel has the power to do. It started a movement because of a conversation that Jesus had with this woman. It started a movement in a very difficult place to reach. Not only do we multiply as disciples, but as I look out over this room, there are a lot of you who have been given leadership roles in the kingdom, some inside of our church, some outside our church. We know that one of the things that we have to do is reproduce healthy leaders for the gospel to go forward, for churches and groups and ministries to be healthy. So leaders are called to multiply leaders. If you're a leader, you need to multiply yourself. Second Timothy 2, 2, Paul writing to Timothy says, you therefore my son, calls him his son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So know who you are. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In other words, as a leader in the kingdom, you're not a rock star. It's not about you. So equip, disciple, train others, multiply your leadership. It doesn't matter if they don't know your name. Instead, the kingdom will expand. More people will be healthy. More people will come to know Christ as Savior. And the ministry will go on. Groups. We want to see our groups multiply groups through intentional disciple making. We see this all throughout the book of Acts. 
And most of the early churches are really what we would call life groups. They were almost house churches in that era. And so I love what it says about the expansion of the gospel in Acts 17, 6. It says, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. That one group, one city, one neighborhood at a time. People came to Christ and they grew together in biblical community. We need to see that happen. There's a lot of people who are never going to walk in the doors of this church, but they are looking for Jesus. What if you have a group in your neighborhood? What if we could establish a healthy group, disciple-making group, in every single neighborhood, every single apartment complex, every single road, right? Right here in our own region that somebody knew in my neighborhood, there's somebody who knows Jesus, who knows how to make disciples, who knows how to minister and serve people. That would be an amazing movement of God's spirit. And then, of course, last but not least, we want to be churches that multiply churches. We do that through campuses here at the church at Station Hill. We were the first campus out of Brentwood Baptist. But did you realize that Brentwood Baptist itself was launched by Woodmont Baptist Church in the Green Hills area of Nashville in the late 1960s? And so we are part, right, of a legacy of churches that said, you know what, we could just keep building bigger buildings. We could keep drawing more people here. We could pat ourselves on the back for the numbers we had. Or, or, or. Maybe God has given us critical mass and we need to raise up and send out. And so one of the coolest things we have gotten to be a part of is three years ago, out of the church at Station Hill, we started our first church in the College Grove, Chapel Hill area called Grove Hill Church. I talked to Ridley on the phone this week. There's about 40 of our friends, right, who went and did that with him. And we missed them, but we're excited about what God's doing because out of that first group of 40, do you know what their average attendance was last month in the month of October? 280. It's the most they've ever had. Praise God. And here's what's even cooler than this. We're about 11 and a half years old here at the church at Station Hill. Did you know we're about to become grandparents? We're pretty young and hip grandparents, right? 11 and a half years old. Because Grove Hill Church is going to plant a church. One of our ministry residents is going to lead in Eagleville. And so from here to Murfreesboro, right? From here to the county line or the state line in Alabama, from here to the north, from here to the west, we want to be a part of raising up, sending out people through campuses, planning, revitalization, whatever the door that God opens is. We want to be a part of it. We know, as I mentioned last week, crossing cultures, that God is bringing the nations to Nashville. Fadi Al-Hajjal is our church multiplication minister. God saved him when, as a Syrian, he came to University of Tennessee Martin to play, to play football. He was a kicker on the football team. And so God saved him. He became a pastor. He has a huge heart for the nations. There are over 90 people groups in Nashville right now. Fadi's goal that through our church family in the next 10 years, there will be a church in every people group in Nashville. We're at about 22 right now. There's 90 plus. So let's go. Let's be a part of what God is doing as he multiplies his kingdom in Middle Tennessee and beyond. But where does it all start, church family? Again, don't get the cart before the horse. It starts with coming to Jesus, saying, Lord, what's my priority? Jesus said, let's go. Let's go get the word out. Let's go to that next town. Let's go to that next village. What is next for you? Would you do this this morning? Would you put down your Bibles, your phones, whatever? Would you put both feet on the floor? I'm going to ask you to assume a posture of prayer this morning as we come to this moment and as we close out this series. A little unusual for us, but sometimes it's really helpful to just do something physically that lines up our head and our heart spiritually. Would you do this this morning? Would you take your two hands and would you put them out in front of you in this position? Remember that cup? Today, would you ask God 
to fill your cup with his wisdom, with his priority for your life? Would you ask him for the grace and mercy, for the wisdom and discernment that you need? There's a lot of you in this room, I know, seeking something deeper, seeking direction, meaning, purpose. Let me tell you, you're not gonna find it in a planning meeting. You're gonna find it in your prayer closet. And so to make this moment your personal prayer closet for just a moment today, and would you ask God to show you what it is that your priority needs to be so that you can multiply for his namesake? Would you receive today the truth that he's given you today through his word? Let me give you a moment to pray. Now, would you take those hands and would you put them up? You know, when you put our hands up like this, it's a universal sign of surrender. We surrender all. What we receive, we give. And so we want to live with this posture and this rhythm, right? Receiving from our Father from the spirit, from Jesus, the direction we need so that we can go. And as your pastor today, I have my hands outlifted. This is what we do when we commission, when we dedicate. And so today as your pastor, kind of a reverse commissioning, I want to commission you to carry forward this vision and these values into the mission field into which God has placed you. Would you Bring the power, the hope, the grace, and the mercy of Jesus to others. So Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the example that Jesus set for us. That before we go change the world, we have to have our hearts transformed by you. Before we're overwhelmed, the massive needs in the world, we come to the one who can do something about it. And we ask him, what is it that you want me to do? What role do you want me to play? So Lord, we go, we love because you first loved us. And it's in your name we pray these things. And all God's people said, amen. Stand with us as we sing this hymn in response this morning.